0: Well, it's my birthday today. I'm 32, so I'm like, almost dead. This is the catchy theme song. This is the catchy theme song. The balloons were bobbing in the breeze of ceiling fans. The flowers were fresh, and there were tissue boxes everywhere. I was sitting in this woman's house, interviewing her about the untimely death of her high school daughter, who had died in a drunk driving accident just like a day or two before the presence of death was just so fresh in the house and she was crying as she told us what she could about where her daughter got the alcohol that led to her being drunk in the first place i was working in law enforcement at that time and we were trying to build a case against the person who had bought the alcohol for her but i remember the girl's mother She looked at me and my partner and then she asked if maybe we could see if we could put a sign with some flashing lights or something in place where her daughter had crashed. I remember that moment more than any other from that whole experience because I could just feel the futility of it all. Like your daughter was super drunk, but that's not the point, is it? The point is not that a sign would have prevented her from getting in the accident. And I mean, while she was kind of implying that, I think it was just part of the grieving process and that makes sense. This woman felt the emptiness of death, that hollow absence left in the wake of death. And I think she just wanted her daughter's death to count for something. And I think I remember that moment so vividly because I just felt so bad for her. And I think a sign for her would have been like some sort of legacy. Every time she would see that sign warning other drivers, she could take at least some comfort knowing that her daughter's death represented something. That it wasn't a waste. That there is an enduring positive change that came about from it. I've noticed this among many parents who have lost children. They typically will start fundraisers, they'll advocate for signs with flashing lights, they'll erect monuments or plaques. They just want the death of their child to mean something. And the death of a child is something I've never experienced, and I hope I never do, but I hear there's nothing worse on the planet. So I can't imagine what these parents are going through. And it's completely understandable that they want their child to leave some sort of legacy. They just want to find, like, something good that comes out of it because it's so tragic and so empty-feeling. And I'd probably do the same thing. And the reason I bring that up is not to highlight the futility of leaving a legacy or anything like that. The reason I bring that up is because I think we all have this same desire to matter. We want for our lives and the lives of those whom we love to have an impact that reaches beyond the funeral. We all want to know that death is not the end. I lost a friend when I was 16. She was one of my closest friends at the time and i will never forget the pain i felt after my dad told me that she had died and she died suddenly while receiving treatment for a condition she never even told me that she had because i think she was just embarrassed about it but i remember feeling so empty like that's it she's just gone i remember that night i literally thrashed around in my bed sobbing and clutching my sheets I asked God if I could have, like, one last chance just to tell her bye, because I had never gotten to say that. You know, people always say that. I I never got to say bye. I never got to, like, have some sort of conclusion. I forgot about that prayer and fell asleep, only to dream that I was standing in a completely white room and her standing expectantly in front of me. I didn't say anything. I couldn't. I just hugged her, and then I woke up. Was that really her? That I have some sort of transcendent experience in which I communicated with the dead? I don't know. But I do know that it did bring me at least some sense of closure, because that's really what I wanted. I wanted to close the book of our relationship with some sort of concluding paragraph, something worth echoing in my head for the rest of my life. The last thing I had said to her was that she'd been gone a lot during the summer and we should meet for lunch. Not really the most impactful words. But really, no matter how you die... I think there will always be this feeling that the book wasn't finished. Even the longest and most prosperous life still seems to slam the book shut in your face before you're finished reading. Because life isn't complete, and even if the book ends, you still find yourself longing for more. Last year I was listening to a song from Thursday, one of her favorite bands, and something about that moment hit me. I realized that if she were still alive, we would probably still be close friends she'd be someone who my wife would have to meet before marrying me maybe she and my wife would have been friends i finished the drive to my parents house and then suddenly just broke down crying in the kitchen and nobody had any idea what was happening and i was crying too hard to explain it she died when i was 16 and now i'm 32 like literally double my age and i'm still feeling that same emptiness of her passing death just stings and it keeps stinging no matter how long it's been I mean, can you really blame us for wanting to find some meaning, some purpose behind it all? The pain of death is one of the worst pains a human being can experience. We want some kind of alleviation. And I think the only source of comfort is legacy, purpose, meaning, because that's sort of like a life after life for those of us that are still stuck on planet Earth. Death is one of those topics that when you first bring it up, there isn't much to talk about and nobody really wants to talk about it. But then once you give it some thought, you begin to realize that endless books can be written about the significance of death on our lives. Because think about it, you're going to die. And that changes literally everything. If you weren't ever going to die, what urgency would there be to your daily schedule, to relationships? Would we get married if we were actually, you know, as most couples erroneously claim saying I do to forever? Would we have children since each kid is a new permanent presence on the planet? And would we even have humanitarian work? I mean, after all, most humanitarian work is geared towards making people not die or at least delay their deaths to the appropriate time in life, like when they're supposed to die. When you start to explore the idea of death, there are literally infinite paths you can take. You'll never get to the end of the significance of death, and it'll mess with your head. And trust me on this, I've done it. When I was in college, I did a special seminar on death with a philosophy professor, and I read a book about death every single week, and then we would meet together to talk about death, and it really messed me up. My poor college girlfriend had no idea how to handle my solemn musings at football games as everyone cheered for a touchdown and I just sat there and complained about how we were all a fading vapor and that every moment, every interaction, every emotion would ultimately die and be forgotten, that we were all just transient entities passing through the illusion of time, that we were all just plummeting towards the grave. It's a dark place to go man and death is oddly all at once the most significance giving and the most significance robbing thing there is if you could even call it a thing because of death life matters and because of death life also doesn't matter so what does any sane person do with that i guess you can face death and just try to live the most impactful life you can so that you leave a lasting legacy or you can just do like most Americans and pretend it doesn't exist. There's also that. And if it comes up in conversation, you can either make some awkward comment about "Hell, well, that conversation got dark, and you can make some joke about it, but either way, the light of your life is slowly getting dimmer. I remember when I was a kid, and old people would always joke about how, well, I can't do that anymore. You know, back in the day, I could do that. And they would just make jokes about how, like, their body was breaking down And I remember thinking that was like odd, but I was like, I guess that's funny to them. I don't know. But now that I'm getting older, like the past few years of my life are the first few years I've experienced where I can't do things that I used to do. Like my body doesn't have the same resilience and endurance that it used to do. Like for the first time in my life, my younger self could beat my older self at certain athletic endeavors. Usually I'm just getting better and better, but now I'm slowly exiting the prime of my life. And my body is starting to break down. Like I'm going the other direction now. And I feel that same temptation to make jokes about it. But like it's not funny at all. Like as I approach the age of my body beginning to break down, I realize those jokes aren't really jokes. They're coping. Like it's really sad. It's really terrible that my body is breaking down and there's really nothing funny about it. And I realize that those jokes are just ways of dealing with it. And so it's like no matter what you do, the ceiling is coming down on your head, the water is drying, the hourglass sand is sinking, however you want to look at it, your life is ending one day, one minute, one second, one breath, one heartbeat at a time. And whether you run from it, face it, or ignore it, it's going to happen. You are going to die. There's so much I could talk about here, but I've kind of been rambling already, and I think it's best if I take a particular angle on this. So I'm going to take a turn, but it should connect to everything I've already said. And this is a deconstruction podcast, so let's take a moment to deconstruct death. To do that, I want to ask a simple question. Why are American Christians so afraid of death? Now, even while I have wildly narrowed down our topic, there is still so much we could discuss here. I could talk about how moralistic therapeutic deism a topic i bring up regularly on this podcast has caused us to be focused on this life here on earth rather than the next life or how that theology teaches us to store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but i've kind of already covered that in other episodes so i'd like to go a different direction with this question because i think here we definitely do see heretical theology affecting how we view death like how we give our lives meaning and significance in light of death. But what's more interesting is, in my opinion, how we see our actions and fears betraying our theology. In other words, our hearts and our minds are kind of out of sync on the topic of death. And there's really something here. See, Christians seem just as afraid to die as everyone else. And I'm not talking about Christians on their deathbed. Like, you might be thinking, well, my grandma died and she died so peacefully because she knew she was going to be with Jesus. Like, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the way Christians live. See, I see Christians just as anxious to die, like eager to preserve their lives and their possessions, trying to delay death as long as possible. And they kind of treat death like it's this distant, dark reality that they don't want to confront. And so they just kind of ignore it like everyone else. But our theology is different, right? Like, our theology doesn't teach us that. At least, good theology. In theory, we aren't afraid of death. We love to read 1 Corinthians 15 at funerals and, Oh, death, where is your sting? We know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we know that we're following a Savior who ultimately gave up his life and taught that greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. So, what's going on? Why is there a disconnect between our hearts and our minds? because we know in theory that we shouldn't be afraid of death. Yet, here we are. And this is very human. I mean, this disconnect. Have you ever talked to your friend who knows that smoking is bad, and that it causes cancer, and that it's harming their children with secondhand smoke, yet they continue to go out of their way to purchase them and smoke them all day? They continuously make a decision contrary to all logic and reason, and you can't figure out why that is. Or maybe you've talked to someone in an abusive relationship, They fully acknowledge that it's bad, and they need help, and they need to get out. Yet each day, they continuously choose to remain. There sometimes is just a disconnect between our hearts and our minds, between our desires and our ideals. And I think this is no exception. We get it. We shouldn't be afraid to die. But we are. And like I said, I could go to MTD again, Moralistic Therapeutic Deism, and talk about how churches have taught a theology of comfort and prosperity, which is certainly true but I want to look at a different source of the disconnect. Let's talk for a moment about one of my absolute favorite topics to discuss, culture. Culture to me is so interesting because it opens your eyes to the reality that you don't see life as others do, that you don't think like others do, and that a lot of the beliefs you hold that you always assumed were just natural and obvious are actually just byproducts of the culture in which you were raised, and that's crazy. What's clear to you is stupid to other people. What's natural for you is absurd to others. So what is natural to us? Well, we live in what's known as an individualistic culture. In fact, we are super individualistic. We pretty much see life in terms of, well, me. If I try to describe it to you, you'll probably just be like, yeah, duh. So I don't think that'd be super interesting. That, that'd that be like trying to explain to a fish what water feels like. It's, it's just like, yeah, that's the stuff that's everywhere. I, I, I get that. So instead of explaining to you something you already know, even if it is second nature or intuitive, I'll describe a culture that is not individualistic. See the opposite of individualistic is collectivistic. Most countries here in Africa are collectivistic. A lot of Muslim and Asian countries are also collectivistic. Basically, this means that you see life not in terms of yourself and your life, but in terms of the group that you belong to. You assess your worth and value by your relationships and your identity in terms of a group. Maybe your family, your friends, your classmates, your secret society, or your community in general. The key to understanding a collectivistic culture is to understand that without your community, you really have no value. It's like you don't exist. Like without relationships, you don't exist. You are defined not by your true self or who you are at the core of your being. Instead, you are defined collectively. Your identity is grounded in a group of people and your stance within that group. Like if you are in good standing within your group, that is your goal in life and as i'm saying this you might notice the number of biblical themes surfacing i mean jesus was carried outside of the city the the city that belonged to his group to be crucified lepers and outcasts sought jesus for inclusion and healing tax collectors were the trash in society because they had betrayed their jewish communities Uh, Even the significance of like the the scapegoat going out of the city I mean, there's just so many of these elements these collectivistic elements in Scripture There's, There's just so much here and the more you understand this cultural difference the more you'll understand the Bible But that's a topic or maybe like a series for another time today. We're just talking about death So how does a society like ours an individualistic society view death? compared to a collectivistic society Well, as I've already said, our lives in America, which by the way, is not just individualistic, but one of the most individualistic cultures on the planet. Our lives are ours and ours alone. We define ourselves, we live for ourselves and we die for ourselves. In an individualistic culture like America, if you don't fit in, great, be yourself. You do you, rebel, revolt dye your hair get a tattoo speak your mind stand out in the crowd express yourself these are all values we tend to hold but in a collectivistic culture all of those can serve to potentially isolate you from your community or from bearing the mark of belonging to your community like circumcision or baptism in the bible i'm sorry i can't help myself there's just so much here there's just so much like bible themes here anyways so why would you want to intentionally separate yourself from the community from your source of life by setting yourself apart in an expressive way like that's just individualism that's not like right or wrong that's just like like that's that's individualism setting yourself apart from a community but in america that's a good thing and in collectivistic cultures that's not really a good thing in fact that can be a bad thing to someone in a collectivistic culture It seems rather counterintuitive to do things that set you apart from your group. For them, they see their lives in terms of a shared group identity. And this identity gives meaning and purpose and value to their lives. Moreover, they're not a finite life that appears and vanishes, but are instead part of an infinite stream of lives that exist way before and way beyond them. This is why deceased ancestors are so important in collectivistic cultures. And interestingly, these cultures tend to have like celebrations of death or days where they actually acknowledge death. Like in Mexico, they have the day of the dead. Here in Liberia, they have decoration day where they go to the graves of their relatives and friends and decorate them and clean them. And some of them like actually cook food and bring it to the graves. And they actually believe that there is a real spiritual presence of their ancestors that is present at the graves. And they have an entire holiday where everyone takes off work and travels across the country to go and visit these graves. Like death is something they very much acknowledge as part of their yearly tradition. So their death is not the end. It's just a transition to a different state of being in which they continue to belong to what gives their lives value and meaning. In other words, they die, but their identity and their value does not die with them. They feel a deep connection to their community, both past and present and paying tribute to it and upholding those values is a major part of their culture. So, when they die, they enter into this sort of continued state of belonging to their group or to their community, just in a different spiritual way. I mean, just look at the collectivism inherent to going to war. Like a lot of soldiers who go to war are fighting for a country. There's a shared collectivistic identity among the soldiers. And typically what I found is that talking to soldiers who have been in battle, they'll tell you that when they're on the battlefield, they're fighting more for their brothers beside them than they are their country back home. But there's still that sense of collectivism. They're willing to die for something beyond themselves. And so when you limit death to yourself, when your significance dies with with you it's much harder to die but when you're dying for something beyond yourself whether it's your community or some kind of shared identity it's much easier to have peace as you think about your own death but compare that to an individualistic culture if you exist for yourself when you die you die that's kind of it there is no legacy except the impact you've made and the lives you've touched, which I think is why we're so desperately searching for meaning and purpose and ways to make an impact. We want to find some way for our lives to matter beyond our death, because our culture kind of leaves us to ourselves. Our individualistic culture doesn't really give identity and purpose to us like collectivistic cultures can and do. For them, their identity is secure, so long as they uphold the values of their community. But for us, we have the burden of defining ourselves and defining our identities. It's an arduous task, and it understandably creates a lot of anxiety and stress and depression. I mean, who wants to live a life that ultimately doesn't matter and will eventually disintegrate to nothing? I mean, I guess people who are really making an impact can take comfort in that, but most people probably don't feel that way. So, in America, we're left to define ourselves, and it is ourselves that die. So death literally robs us of everything. So what does this have to do with Christianity? Well, culture influences Christianity, and like I said, most people don't understand that the culture they're in is just one way of thinking among several or many other ways of thinking. The culture you are in is influencing you in ways you don't realize. And that's often the way it is until you get out of your culture and dive into another one. In fact, I would actually say that deconstruction is very American. Like you'll notice I'm talking about a lot of the individualism and a lot of the American culture is kind of deconstruction culture. And I'm actually going to do a podcast episode on that, that I do plan on doing. Um, But once you get outside of that culture, you begin to see all the ways your own culture has influenced you. So yes, our individualistic culture has influenced us and our particular version of Christianity. I mean, just look at how we portray salvation. Jesus came for you to forgive you of your sins and have a relationship with you. And when you die, you can go to heaven. It's all individual. Yet when Paul articulates the gospel, it's often in terms of Jews and Gentiles and Greeks and barbarians, and he goes to great lengths to speak collectively. And this is, I think, lost in the English because most of the time when you see the word you, he's actually speaking to a group of people, not just you, the reader. And which makes sense because he wrote a lot of his letters to churches. But the point is, a lot of times he's speaking to groups and a lot of the Bible is written in collectivistic cultures and to collectivistic cultures. The you is plural, like in the Greek, it's actually plural. And yes, I know that there is an individualistic element to Christianity. Like there is an individualistic sense in which you do enter a relationship with Jesus. Like I'm not saying that isn't there. Like your salvation is not your kid's salvation. But there also is significance there that I think we completely lose, that I think we really don't understand. Like I don't think we really understand what it means to be in Christian community and belong to Christian community like people in collectivistic cultures do. The Bible is really written collectivistically, and I think we do a great disservice to Scripture when we import our own individualistic thinking into it, which is exactly what we've done. And when it comes to how we approach death, we forfeit a lot of meaning and value when we view it in terms of just our lives. And I think that causes us to be fearful, because the themes in Scripture that give us purpose and meaning in death are inherently collectivistic. It isn't just about going to heaven— That type of thinking will cause us to still dread death because it's still a loss of our expressive identities that we have constructed over the course of our lives. All the work that we've put into building up ourselves and expressing ourselves and defining ourselves will still die when we die. The clash between our theology and our anxiety is, I think, a clash between our individualistic culture and the more collectivistic themes that you find in scripture. We understand them in theory, but we don't get it we are so preoccupied with our own lives and our own identities that we fail to grasp the profound nature of belonging to the capital c church we don't really understand what the communion of saints is we don't feel the great cloud of witnesses we don't see value in bearing the marks of a follower of christ we don't really get the call to uphold our god-given identities as sojourners and heirs in another kingdom We don't really find value in walking in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham. Those themes and concepts are, I think, completely lost on us. And I don't really think we see much value in belonging to the invisible church, past and present. I mean, look at what we've done to baptism. Historically, the sign of the covenant was intended to be a collectivistic sign of belonging to the covenant community a marker that identifies you as part of the followers of christ and yet we've taken that and we've turned it into this individualistic expression of my own personal faith and my own commitment and i'm pretty sure that was not the original intent those themes and concepts are i think completely lost on us so we're left empty trying to understand something in our own minds that is far from our hearts And so I think that's the source of that dissonance. I think that's the source of the disconnection is this clash between our culture and our theology. And then we try to replace that emptiness that we feel, that emptiness that death brings with our own lives and whatever impact they make, hoping to give ourselves some value and some significance, but it usually doesn't work. So we're left anxious and afraid of death, just like everyone else. And so unless we're at a funeral we tend to ignore death and pretend like it doesn't exist. So we fail to live lives that embrace death, that accept our identities of belonging to a long line of those who walked in our footsteps before us. And without the acceptance of death in our culture, we are the living dead. Because until you have faced your life in light of your own death, I don't think you can truly live. This episode is in memory of Taylor Fita. It's been over 15 years since I lost you, but I know for a fact we'd still be close friends. In fact, who knows, maybe I would have kept my promise and married you at the age of 26. Either way, you are not forgotten, and as long as I'm alive, you never will be. Thank you so much for listening. Keep the faith.